Hi, thanks for checking out One Debate, a bi-weekly podcast where we strive to help you become the best person at your table. If you like what you hear, please like, review, and subscribe to our podcast so we can help others like you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We also have a YouTube channel for those of you who would like to listen there. New episodes come out every other Monday. I'm Jacob, and as always, we're here with our resident DM, Gabe. Hello. What are we talking about tonight, Jacob? Well, Gabe, to celebrate that we've done this for 10 episodes without any technical (laughs) difficulties, (laughs) we are going to answer questions that our friends have asked us on our discord channel and it's a great place to plug in gabe where or how rather they could be people to ask questions so where do they go gabe how did how does you that can... happen oh i jumped the queue ha <laughs> you can join our patreon where tier one subscribers can gain access to our personal discord fantastic yeah Yeah, that that was that was even better than the first time nice yeah uh (laughs) (laughs) so now this is where the episode gets a little bit weird um Mm -hmm. so the first question is from our friend brian hi brian and he asked this a while ago and we've answered it a little bit but not fully so companions npcs pets cognitive weapons slash items yes it can be a headache for dms but why not why not indeed well jacob i think uh companions we've we've discussed a bit before too um i think that companion is a great tool especially an npc companion not a dm pc which should be probably avoided i think a a companion that can join the party and grant guidance uh, and relevance to a storyline or narrative is really important. I think you need to keep in sh- keep in mind how much um, how does your party gel? Do you have a large number of player characters that are slow to make their turns? You might not want to consider throwing three party NPCs in with them. Are these companions active participants in combats? Do they constantly slow down RP? Do they interact and you know? ways that are slowing the session down in an unhealthy way or are they are they good um what do you think i think that like i said in the first episode or not first episode but in one of the earlier episodes when we talked about companions i feel like the companions are the player responsibility and i Mm -hmm. i said this on our first recording that um it's kind of like that situation where players are always like if you say this if the dm says this to them they're like well you need to take care of that player or that npc rather and it's like the same thing as if you're trying to get a pet and your mom's like no because you're not going to take care of it and then i'm gonna have to Mm -hmm. and you know just take care of your pet yeah just take care of it like act feed it. it bathe it Make sure that's there. Take it into combat with you if you really want to. Brush his teeth. Those kind of things. <laughs> Those kinds of things. Yeah. No, I, I I do agree with you. I don't mean to be flippant, but um. Well, it's flippant did... because we're re- we're repeating this. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is true. We had some technical difficulties. Um, pets. I know that I touched on this briefly. I think pets are grand. Um, but again. Bear in mind what they will do to a slog of combat. D&D 5th edition in particular can be very slow and taxing on your players, especially if you have a lot of the wrong... I shouldn't say wrong. Um, A lot of the turn-heavy characters, like a shepherd druid who summons six bears every combat, along with the battlesmith, artificer, and the ranger who both have pets... Um, do your combat rounds take 20 minutes? Maybe talk during session zero about the composition of your party. Uh, and then if your DM is also going to be putting pets along on top of that that are sort of vanity items, um, I think they're neat. Uh, you you have to ask your, yourself or your players, do the players want them? 
as somebody who um, doesn't like long combat, there's no way that you're going to only have a 20-minute round of combat with all those animals. There's no Why way. There's no way. Every person, some people are going to take like 20 minutes just by themselves because they're going to be like, oh, what actions do my bears have? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you can say, oh, you can swarm them and whatnot. And yes, you can. But the spells, especially the old conjuration, like conjure animal spells, they let the player individually position the placement of every single monster. And they can have up to 16 tiny creatures with some of those the spells. So you want to talk a slog? Talk about your player positioning 16 tiny fairies on the battlefield that will all start casting sleep. And then track it for every single one. Because that's fun? I guess. Uh, it's Maybe. not fun for me as a rogue who's going to just not have any any action for that entire yeah. turn. And so. you're going to stab one person, then your turn's ending, and guess what? I'm getting Those a dog. fairies? <laughs> Those fairies are going to take their turn again. Uh, go ahead, though. Uh, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm moving to the cognitive weapons mm -hmm. slash items. Um, I'm not a huge fan of cursed weapons, if that's what you're referring to i'm not a huge fan of those kind of things i think that's funny like some of the stories i've read on reddit like how they've like one item was like a cursed stick that every mm -hmm. time that they went to go pull out their their sword it magically put that stick in their hand instead like that's mm -hmm. hilarious but um <laughs> is it gonna really are you gonna have friends after that probably not <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I think um cognitive forces uh like artifacts that have their own personalities like the sun sword has its own mm. personality. Um I I think that they can be good and fun, but I think that there needs to be a modicum of restraint when you're using them. Um if you're constantly plaguing your characters with like blades that need to drink the blood of innocence and really edgy stuff that has a lot of moral consequence um your players might start to get a little uh skeptical of your your items and they're just not going to use them potentially oh man i was gonna just go to the blood bank and stock up on on ab blood for my for my sword that needs it sure the orphanage <laughs> Whee! now that was edgy <laughs> <laughs> What are your thoughts? <laughs> the next question comes from, from Nick, our friend Pickle Nick. What are your thoughts on homebrewed content? Should it have some sort of place in everyone's D&D campaign? Yes and no. Um, I like homebrew as much as the next guy, I think. Um, I I certainly... I, I create some homebrew every campaign, but it's never a huge feature i find that i am i i'm the dm that um i like to do a voice for most of my characters i like to create foam terrain and paint it i like to create custom combats and puzzles every session i like to create maps with, through uh, map making tools for for my combats um when it comes to homebrewing magical items i prefer to do that in a more collaborative way um, and I tend to make them items that grow and they have a smaller role in the campaign because I have created many an item that simply collects dust. I, I much prefer to just get engagement and buy-in with my players through collaboration and I, I create small homebrew pieces based on the player's desire. Does that player have something in mind that they really want their character to have? Um, do you want to be a MacGyver? Do you want to be able to create something? Maybe I'll homebrew a little mending rod for you. Or, you know, I, I do it to enhance my players' enjoyment by connecting with them collaboratively. I don't typically create homebrew and then throw it at the wall and see what sticks. See, when you when you said that you have, like that you've made some homebrewed items that have sat and collected dust, mm -hmm. I would love that as a cursed item. That, like, it literally just collects dust everywhere 
because think of think of the implications you're walking around and you just have this mound of dust like it has to have some kind of benefit to it eventually yeah you you reach into your bag and you touch the the bag of holding never <laughs> you touch the wrong item that you've neglected that your dm hates that you've forgotten and just a cloud of dust spores explode around you everyone takes the four necrotic damage <laughs> take that players <laughs> um for me i think that homebrew content's cool um as long as your players like gabe said as long as your players are into it as long as you're into it that's fine but if you're a player that like D&D purists that only want to run modules and mm -hmm. only want to run it by the book, then you're probably not going to have any homebrewed content. And that's up to you as, as a DM, up to you as a player to find out who you are and where you want to be. Because personally, I said that I've seen campaigns where you run as squirrels. Mm -hmm. And um, doesn't sound interesting to me. And I play PBTA games where you could be a maid in a house so yeah. yeah i i think i think you hit the, the nail on the head there um and if you're newer and you're concerned about a homebrewed item or experience imbalancing your game or doing something that detracts from your enjoyment of the game as a dm you know just don't include it it's it's not necessary um and you know play with it you'll find your way i'm also going to say as a as a little aside that this is the first of i think three questions that are related to homebrew content so if we didn't mm -hmm. touch like we didn't go very into depth with this one because there are other homebrew content questions that uh we're going to answer that maybe we didn't feel that we needed to touch here yeah so this so next Jacob oh so sorry may may i read this question since it's from you yes okay jacob asked ttrpg questions at one point or another we've all had that person at the table what was the most distracting thing that that person ever did in your opinion i'm gonna just say this now if you don't have that person at your table should probably look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> Damn. Hot takes. Gabe's sad corner. <laughs> He's looking at me while he said that. No, I'm just I'm just saying um cuz I know that I've been that person at the table at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> but for me, I have two answers of what was the most distracting thing that person ever did. Uh, one was my DM who made us go down a hole for 30, 30 minutes, minutes, just going down that hole, keep on slogging down the hole. Like if I, I thought I was going to quit D and D forever. Actually, I did stop playing D and D after that point, truthfully. <laughs> um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing was in the campaign i think it was the lost minds um that i was playing on roll 20 where we it was a paid play table this guy was um interjecting every so often no it was tomb of annihilation he was interjecting every so often about the right calling or the right um mm -hmm. ruling and like bro just shut up yeah like yeah. you're not the dm he if if he has a question He'll ask us what we think, mm -hmm. but your opinion here isn't like there's a polite way of doing things. And then there's the way that you're doing it. And yeah. at the end of the campaign, at the end of the, the session, we all just wanted him to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I will say I'm typically one of the more experienced DMs in the games I play. And the DM will often ask me a question like, how would you rule this? Or do you remember the rule off the top of your head? Um, I never ever question the dm or his ruling her ruling his or her ruling uh publicly at the table i just i don't it doesn't it doesn't matter um and maybe the dm wants to rule something a custom way like i don't know what the case may be and that is also my biggest pet peeve 
um, backseat DMing, you know, nothing just, it's, it's like, it's like if you were taking a road trip and the, the person in the passenger seat literally grabbed the wheel and pulled the car over (laughs) 20 times during your road trip. I would, I would, it's just like, could you please wait until we get to the gas station to tell me that you're aggravated by the way I press the gas pedal? Um, but yeah, I same. Also, um, I just thought of this one because now that I'm thinking, I had a player um, in a campaign that we never got to run because this person said that they were going to get their information to the DM, mm-hmm. and by a certain time frame and the the dm comes on at the time and is like hey do you have your stuff and they were like oh my god i'm so sorry uh i'm gonna have to like wait a little bit longer but i'm gonna get it and then like little bits of information would come up but not a full character Mm -hmm. and then a month goes by and the dm's just like well guys we're just not gonna do it now Mm -hmm. so um Yeah, that was that was another distracting thing, but I'm actually kind of happy about it because if that was the the way that that person was gonna act before we even got into a campaign, then save my skin. Yeah, yeah. If that's the straw that breaks the camel's back before the game starts, probably for the best. You didn't play. Um, I mean, we could. I'm sure we could go on for a while. Uh, any any characters that make a lot of uh, inappropriate or suggestive comments, lewd comments that like aren't taste in in the taste of the group um i i find that to be very very distracting as a dungeon master someone who's just not reading the room and constantly making things really awkward but like cringy awkward not good awkward any bard i mean i enjoy hitting on bards as much as the next guy but (laughs) nah no, I, I think that I think that player like new players constantly do that. Like mm-hmm. like they're like, Oh, I can be a bard, I can be as funny as I wanna be and like, no, that's still cringy in real life. Like it like how it is in the game too, so uh What's our next question? It's from Brian. What Brian, hi fl- Brian. <laughs> what are your philosophies on magical items? I love magical items. Um Actually, we we probably have a lot to say with this because I think more important, and I'm assuming that we aren't discussing homebrew magic items because we kind of already touched on that. Um, How do you implement magic items, I think, is the more important question because I've already mentioned with my homebrew that I I, I prefer to collaborate with the players. Again, you know, um, I think... Classic D&D is having a bag of magical items that you can sort of pull out and be like, what's going to be the duct tape that fixes the hole in the boat this time? Um, But achieving that's really hard, and players don't keep great track of all the items you give them. So I prefer to honestly, and this might not be the most well-received solution, I like to provide tables the magic item tables that are in the DMG. And as scale of play moves, I assign different values to them and I let my players buy them out of game with basically treasure points from Adventure League. Like, oh, we've played 20 sessions. You have 20 treasure points. This is how much this item costs. They buy it out of game. It shows up in game somewhere. Game's gobbles. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it shows up in a treasure pile at the end of a dungeon, and that player's thrilled. They wanted that item. I've, you know, made it accessible to them, but it, it isn't perfect, and your players have to understand, like, there's going to be a little bit of immersion breaking because, oh, exactly what I wanted just happens to be there. But you can throw 30 magical items at your players, and guess what? If they don't want or resonate with any of them, well, you're going to be a little disappointed. I'm just trying to make my players have fun and be the heroes. I don't really have an opinion on magical items. That's that's, oh, yeah. that's my my philosophy on magical items is that they Yeah, I actually just don't. I don't. I can't even mm-hmm. think of of anything off the top of my head. Like Yeah. 
I am flat neutral on magical items. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think they can they can overcomplicate situations. They can trivialize situations. They can just be a ton of fun. Um, it just depends, really. Uh, throw them at the wall, see what sticks. You gonna read this next one? Are oh, we, sure. Are we going back and forth? Well, I was just gonna read. All right, yeah, I got you. This one's from Leon, friend from Germany. <laughs> I have a question about combat difficulty from a DM's perspective. If you've thematically envisioned an encounter to be harrowing, what do you think about adjusting the difficulty on the fly, depending on how the PCs are rolling? Do you want me to answer first, or do you want to? I want you to answer first. I think that if you've already envisioned an encounter to be harrowing, then you've already messed up. That's what I think. I think that it's okay for you to have the encounter be difficult, but I don't hear like the problem is like if you're already thinking that something's going to be be difficult, then you're already kind of going into that railroad. Um, yeah. I like that you said that, and I think you are correct. And this is where I break my own rules. I often will dream up a combat being harrowing or challenging or difficult. Um, the trick is I never adjust it once it's begun. Um, and this is kind of a personal philosophy. I don't, I have seen people post uh, how they DM and they they never do any prep work. They don't create stat blocks in advance. They let the monster die when they think the players are satisfied with the combat. If it's dragging, they knock him down to one health and they let the next blow kill it. I think that's fine if, you're, if your players are happy with that. Personally, the realism of knowing that I have a set of goals to achieve that are unflinchingly rigid is very important to my buy-in to the game. Um, if I get the feeling that combats are simply an illusion of the, the, the dungeon master's construction, you know, I have a hard time buying into that. I think to myself, well, this means nothing. You're just going to give us a pass when you're satisfied. And as long, it, 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 see, this is a very philosophical, tangential thing. Um, but once a combat begins, I don't change a thing. And I have had, and just Justin Gallantor, uh, Palace Zion's boss that the players went to kill, they got to him at the end of the dungeon. Paladin crit dropped a level four smite, dealt almost 100 damage at level five, or something similar to that. It wasn't, you know, might have had some of the details wrong there, but. He went down in one round. It was not harrowing or exciting or excellent. But, you know, the play I felt the players had they delved through the dungeon. They they did the dance. They got to the end, they duck dodge, dip dive and dodge, and smote his ass. Uh, and I, I just I just awarded them that moment. And they kind of looked at me and said, That was really easy. I was like, nah, you got lucky. <laughs> I think that that actually also, I think that having those kind of moments is a, is a funny thing that can happen in the game too. Like, yeah, because he ended up becoming a huge problem later on mm-hmm. in the game. So no one really expected it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like, he, I was, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I just said, I, I took that challenge and I said, okay, well you, you killed him easily. And you know, like you said, they, it's a, mem- it's a very memorable moment. Um, constantly it was referenced. Like, remember Destrothor? We we were all scared of him. We killed him in, like, two hits. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, But he had sent out Plague Riders, and it's actually going to be a big source of intrigue for my next game. No, no, no. What I was going to say there was that, um, I mean, even with the combat that I had you guys involved in in PBTA, like, Mm -hmm. I have 20 werewolves surrounding you guys. I don't have a plan. But I do know that I'm not changing it. I knew that I was that you guys were going into a werewolf's den. That's mm-hmm. on you guys. That's on you. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. You know, like you you tried to do as the best that you could do to 
like get the jump on these supernatural beings but mm -hmm. and then you ended up taking care of them yourselves anyway so i was like yeah 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 it's i do really just to preface what you said before i really like that you said what you did about combats in general just at the beginning of our, our discussion of this question um you know, if you've envisioned something, it is dangerous territory. I do it all the time, and I try my best to make it harrowing. But if I fail to make it harrowing, I eat my failure. Uh, I think that's important because then your players know, like, okay, well, Gabe is playing by the book. Uh, we can overcome his encounters with some luck. If you never do that, uh, it might start to feel a little cheap yeah a little trite a little cheap who knows maybe not if your players are happy keep doing what you're doing if the players are happy then you have a happy table and when At the table's D &D. happy that means the mimic is hungry i i hate i hate you after all these years you should <laughs> so now we're moving on to all prices questions. Every single Bryce's one of prices questions. Um, so Bryce, I apologize. We're not reading this full question, but it's it is very. Long. It is articulated very well. It is. Um, so Bryce asks about the feminine gaze, and mm -hmm. in this he asks. Does it matter for us to keep the female lens engaged when the audience is just those at the table? And mm -hmm. I argue that, yes, it is very important. It is always important to share your own experiences, whether that's through a female character, whether that's a female role-playing as a female, uh, because you don't know what experiences everyone at the table ha has you don't know what viewpoint might come out and get changed because of seeing something in or through role play even if it's something as small as just the people around your table it is always important that's my opinion True. i like your opinion um i do have some some counter argument to it i am of a feeling that having the the feminine gaze having strong female characters is important however you you said and i think you're you're coming at this from a perspective of improving all of us as as human beings at the table through experiencing something that um might be uncommon to us like me it, experiencing anything through the the feminine gazes can be a challenge because well i'm a, a dude um However, I would also say you, you mentioned that you don't know what your players have experienced. I think this is an important thing to discuss at the beginning of the game during that session zero. When you say, are there things that you guys or girls want to outline, want to experience, want to explore, or the flip side of that, are there things that you really don't want me to explore? If you have a trauma or something that you do not want Gabe, some random dude, delving into in the middle of the game, you, you need to make it known. Um, you know, nobody's perfect. We sit here and we answer questions back and forth uh, and we give advice. And I think oftentimes maybe it comes off like, yeah, do this this way. This is the right way. But when it comes to something this delicate, put your players in an advantageous position to know that they've been heard, uh, do your best to experience things through your players, through different perspectives, and just be open and generous through storytelling with one another. And I know that's kind of vague, and I hate giving vague answers to something that's important, but at the end of the day, You gotta try and make your table happy. Does it ever feel forced? It can, yeah. Um, 
I do make an effort. I make an actual effort to include very strong female leaders. Um, and I think that I do this because there is a tendency for players to look at medieval fantasy through a historical lens rather than the feminine gaze. And when you're looking at a historical lens, you see the world around us. You see medieval France, King Arthur, and you can begin to translate some of these stories directly in your mind, in your assumptions. And let's let's be frank, how many female knights were on Arthur's table? None. Yeah. And guess what? The female fighter that has the 16 strength and the male fighter that has the 16 strength in my game of D&D, they are absolutely equal. So I think that it's important that we make an effort to ignore a little bit of our own world, our own knowledge and narrative, and we attempt to purposefully seed the feminine gaze. However, you know, you just have to be aware that if you are doing this with an awareness that it can begin to feel like you are forcing it. And if this needs to be a theme that your players want to experience, explore, delve into a narrative, then it's even more important. And if they don't, it probably won't ever come up and you probably don't need to worry about it. And if you do discover the players at your table that say, it's unrealistic to have this buff female fighter kick my ass. Well, guess what? She has a, a strength score of 18. You know what else is unrealistic? Having having a cat person walk around. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Um, or, you know, casting magic missile from a <laughs> wand you found in a in a dungeon under the brewery. All those things aren't unrealistic, <laughs> but that one yeah. was. And yeah. that that is a deeper issue there. Um, yeah. For me personally, um, it it feels forced in the same sense that it feels forced for me to come up with a male name on the spot, and that's that's hmm. that's where mm-hmm. I'm at with it. Like, nah, it doesn't feel forced for me. It's just it's just how hard of or how picky am I going to be about a name because I really like my character names to flow. Like you guys yeah. laughed at me because I made Rudgy Tate and I was like, you know what? I hate you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's exactly that. I think at the end of the day, does it feel like you're forcing an issue on your players? Cause that's where you're going to run into an issue. I think, I think you just need to focus on, on running a fun game for everyone available and be openly communicative. We're going to just keep staring at each other. I think so. I'm more like, <laughs> was that okay? <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That okay. was great. It was beautiful. Okay. You're beautiful. Okay. Thank you. You're cute. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read this next question. Non-magical items are weird. <laughs> <laughs> if they're not useful, they basically never come up. In the PHP, an explorer's pack contains a bunch of items, and I can't ever remember bringing up a water skin, a tinderbox, a mess kit, or a bedroll, an RP, or a game session. Uh, if items actually are useful, we track them to a T, primarily rope, torches, rations, and pitons. Is there a mm-hmm. way to make the items feel more in- integral to the game? Is it necessary or is it just a quirk to simplify the impossible job of making another world real without ever going going over every detail? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that there is... So let's... Where are all of these items located according to the player, Jacob? Where are they? Yeah, like like when when this player's reading these items, where where are they reading them from? Your sheet? Your character sheet, exactly. I was like, I, I don't know, is this a trick question? Like <laughs> No, no. I'm, like, I don't I'm, know I'm the page number you. of the PHB. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm just trying to to lead you to the This is the this is the thing. The DM doesn't have your character sheet. So, 
these personal items aren't tools for the dungeon master to slow the game down. They aren't tools for the dungeon master to use. They're tools for the player to use. They are tools for the player to make convincing story elements off their own sheet. When you sit down for a rest and you pull out the incense and you light it, why have you done that? What does this say about your character? Uh, why is this an important thing? Maybe you want to go ahead and say, okay, we're sitting down to rest. Uh, Gabe, can I, I pull out my incense and I light it. Um, and if anyone looks at me, I'd, I'd like to say uh, this is the same incense that I've lit every weekend back at the chapter of said deity that I worship. And it reminds me of home. Or this is my bedroll. My mother knit my initials into the side of it. And I look fondly on at that. These are the the items that we know that if we were to track them, it would simply bog the game down a lot. And in older editions, they probably were tracked. And in this edition, clearly Wizards has realized there is an importance to these items. But it's up to the player to find the need to bring them to the game. I think that you said that beautifully. Um, Thank you. I really don't have much to add there. Uh, like when we were talking about it, I said like I never really think about bedrolls or anything unless mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like Tombs of Annihilation because you you need some of those items in that game, yeah. uh, in that yeah. module specifically. Otherwise, you're gonna have a bad time. Um, mm-hmm. But it's I don't think that you need to have everything in real life to to make this game fun because if that's the case then we're never gonna go anywhere and each day of travel is going to take a full day and in real life nothing happens a lot of times and that's yeah. that's why you jump from place to place to place it's like tv shows in uh friend on friends and on how i met your mother they look like they're hanging out with each other every day but they're actually only filming on these instances where things happen like ted's not telling these children the story of every day that happened before their mother came along even though it seems like it um Mm -hmm. but yeah 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 well said and and again knowing that it's it's extremely rare situations where you know that your players don't have these items like after a jailbreak you know they don't have the amenities for travel then you might want to instill some sort of ruling like oh you get exhaustion if you keep sleeping out in the cold with no supplies um but aside from that i don't you know it's i think that these are if if the item is on the character sheet i think that it is up to the player to find an investing manner to display that take care of your pet brush his teeth is it Sacrifice to, it. Is it harder to dra- dra- what? Is it harder what? to dramatize aspects of combat the longer a campaign carries on? Um, I think as humans we habit- habituate to just about everything. We get used to things, and they have less impact on us as time goes on. Your very first fireball versus your 127th fireball. The monk who just punches things. As play- both player and DM, how can we continue to keep things new and fresh? even with the same basic playbook in your third year of a campaign versus your first. How can we keep it fresh and make it exciting to perform combat? I say through roleplay. And that is a very basic answer. Um, but Gabe and I have very different opinions on this ne- on, on the topic of called shots. I think that's where called shots mm-hmm. come in as a great tool to use to help change things up. Uh, but you could even explain, like, I draw my bow in a hurried manner, and as I pull, as I pull back on the string, I feel the tautness of the, of the, of the string. Like you can, you can go into those small details, and like, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll get boring after a little bit of doing that too. But then you just find different things. Yeah, and and I I do agree with you. I think that role play is it's the only way to make something like okay you're a warlock you've eldritch blasted from level one 
to level 18. It's been two and a half years of Eldritch Blasting. No, no amount of roleplay, no amount of describing things differently on your 670,000th Eldritch Blast is really going to help alleviate this. And I think ultimately, it just means that you've probably played that character for too long. That might be a hot take. I know a lot of people like the idea of running a campaign for multiple years that spans just this sort of eternal gaming identity. But uh, eh. yeah. I, I think that you should you should vary your experiences. I think once you've experienced the goals of your character, don't let the desire to see future mechanics stop you from creating a new character and a new story for yourself even if it means playing a different class or maybe you just want to play the same class but a new character i think that ultimately the actions your character is taking in combat should be indicative of what your character desires uh, is your character a bloodthirsty assassin is your character a squeamish scholar um i think after a certain duration it's probably simply time to move on to something new, and that's going to be the best way. Like, is there a solution to that? Do you do you really think? Like, like a campaign scaling years, you're gonna just gonna get old. Yeah, I I think that it is probably gonna get old. Um, perhaps only five percent of games make it to level fifteen or higher. Yet I think we all fantasize about what it's like to play immensely powerful characters who are in total control of themselves, heroes in their worlds. Why don't we play these games more often? What's the risk? Um, for me personally, it's because I don't have the buy-in. I don't have that. I don't have that inherent care about the the player at or the character at level fifteen. If I just rolled a character at level fifteen, I mm. want to. I want to climb. I want to climb with my character. I want to grow with my character. I want to see where the beginning, what like where my character is different from level fifteen from then where that they were at level one. That's that's my take on it. Um, and is that ever going to happen for me? Probably not. But mm -hmm. that's me. Yeah. Um. Well, I I I think that a low percentage of games make it beyond level 15 simply because it's stressful for the DM. Um, I gave Jake an example before we, we actually jumped into this where I said I created a dungeon. It took me about six hours to create this dungeon. And it was multi-layered. It was inside a mountain. It was an assassin's hideout, basically. And it was like six floors. I hand-sketched it. I scaled it in Photoshop. I printed it on plotter paper, like architectural size. I had it all laid out. I had an extra camera for it. When my characters, my players came to the entrance, the wizard used a spell to skip to the end. That's what high level can be. Um, and I ruled that the entirety of the, the assassin's compound was lined in lead so that the spell wouldn't work. Does that make me a bad person? Maybe. But I wasn't being paid by the hour, and I wanted my players to experience this dungeon. Um, high level, and I've said this about mechanics. Uh, I've said this about math. I had uh, the same game. The wizard was an evocation wizard, and they had a life cleric. I spent probably two to three minutes every round doing addition and subtraction of hundreds of numbers, just huge numbers. Everything was AoE. Everything was AoE healing. So it's just tedious and it's mind numbing. And there's so many mechanics that can skip content. I think that this boils down to what you're saying, Jake. You're saying that you don't have the buy-in with this character. You don't feel like you can climb with this character. I don't think that the challenge becomes about the character's growth anymore. I think that the challenge becomes how do my mechanics allow me to progress more easily? 
And there is a bit of dissonance between the dungeon master and the player here because the dungeon master wants to continue to experience things like personal growth, character development, story being advanced. And the players have found that the new mechanics of late game allow them to either see really big numbers, which can be cool, but it's a lot of work, or they get to bypass things. They get to teleport across the world. They get to plane shift to a different realm. They get to recruit or chain a deity to their will. Um, they can wish your big bad evil guy out of existence. And yes, there are ways to allow your players to do these things and to allow the story to flourish and to take new avenues. But there becomes this imbalance between what the dungeon master creates and wants to experience and what the player can now mechanically say, nah. And I think that it's just, it wears dungeon masters out. And I personally, after having experienced both all levels of play, I vastly prefer five to 10 where travel is still a necessity where your players aren't going to just bypass all the fun little things you create. Because ultimately, the, the time that I'm spending creating uh, a puzzle, a mechanic for my players, I mean, I'm anticipating that they are desiring to interact with it, to interact with what I've created, that we are going to have this fun back and forth, this experience together. And when it becomes really easy to remove those interactions... I lose interest in the game personally. So I think it's just indicative of that level of gameplay. Yeah, I don't know. I just, level 15 never, never interested me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to say that it's not the interest for a lot of, for a lot of other people. Um, mm -hmm. I think that you're right though, that the risk in this sense is time wasted. For, yeah. um dms maybe that's mm -hmm. what the main risk is yeah you need very generous players you need players that are careful and respectful of the the time that you're spending and you need to have open dialogues um and i think that it's it's just a lot of work and a lot of mature communication that has to occur to make these very satisfying encounters when you can simply play at level nine and not worry about it at yeah. all yeah and for me like as a player the risk is to be unfulfilled you mm -hmm. get everything that you wanted where's where's the fun yeah yeah the uh, stories we're telling at level nine it, at the end of the day narratively are probably the same as the stories at level 20 you know where we're still locked in a conflict and we're trying to overcome it um it's just how much more difficult is it for us all to engage satisfactorily satisfactorily with with that um i've had a lot of time to think about this but i i, I think i'm just going to spin myself in circles if i keep going <laughs> um the inconsistency in which type and uh, what types of realism players and dms lead to enjoy has always been really fascinating to me i like not enjoying about i wow i like not worrying about food but it's also weird that eating is basically a story flavor option in D&D. I like the idea of blowing an enemy's arms off, but I cannot imagine playing through a game as an amputee. Weather only comes up at the discretion of the DM. Distances traveled are modified and not in real time. Significant others and sex are usually heavily downplayed. Is that just the nature of t storytelling today? What does that say about us or the world we live in? I'll let you answer first. Okay. Um... Inconsistency and realism. Uh, I think a lot of these things simply come down to what do we want to engage with thematically, uh, personally. Much like we said with the feminine gaze, what do you as a player really want? And what does the dungeon master want? Because if I start a session and I go into painstaking detail about the breakfast you're cooking for the party, and then I go into detail about the weather today. And then I go on to talk about how <laughs> your amputation is slowing your progress on travel. Um, or, you know, your, your fears 
about your significant other across the land. I think ultimately it just, it's, it's all a matter of lens for me. It's a matter of what am I focusing on to progress our narrative, to progress our story? And is it important? Can I avoid it? Can I skip it? Um, I much like what's on your character sheet. I like to let the players ask these things. What's the weather like today, Gabe? And then I'll say, oh, it's a little bit rainy. You, you, you know, you're feeling it. You've got the poncho on, your clothes are wet, you're slogging through the mud. It's, it's tedious, but you're, you're making it just fine. Um, as far as amputations and, and, you know, having something destroyed body part wise, I avoid it. I think anything that can beat down your character is whew, any, any, like, I don't, I don't know, mechanically anything that's going to diminish a player's enjoyment of the game or make them not feel as capable as their counterparts, their other peers. Um, I just simply avoid it. Plus, I don't, I mean, I don't really need my players like hacking body parts off and running around with them. If that's the kind of game you want to run, I, I certainly think that there are rules for it. And I think that there is a place for it. Uh, if that's the realism that you seek a slippery slope down to uh, something inappropriate yep. and probably not enjoyable. Yep. Um, I also like to leave the lens focused on the the narrative and the important plot elements at hand because then when I want to showcase something like a banquet or a feast being very important, I can then focus. And if my players are like, wow, Gabe's really describing this this cornucopia before us this feast in all of its glory the glazed donuts from Krispy Kreme hmm um, then they know that they're special they know that they're part of the narrative for a reason uh, and I'm encouraging them to interact with it and again if I don't describe it but I say there's a banquet I am waiting for my players to engage me I'm waiting for them to say do I see anything on that table that reminds me of home or that I like and then we will collaborate those things what about you so I, when I was reading this, I originally told you, like, it's so funny. The first thing I gravitated towards was his weather comment. Weather only comes mm -hmm. up at the discretion of the DM. But think about it. When you're living your life, it's mo like at, at where I am right now, it's pretty sunny. Or mm -hmm. like it's it's not raining. That's, that's the point. It's not raining. Um, but when it does rain... I'm like, huh, when was the last time that it rained? Or, mm -hmm. man, it rained yesterday. But, like, that's the only thought that I ever think about the weather. So when a DM yeah. doesn't mention what the weather's doing until he says or she says, yeah, you know, it's raining outside. Like, oh, okay, cool. That's That's kind of my thought on it. And, like, it makes me feel like that's actually more realistic that the DM only, like, describes it when it happens like otherwise you're just outside and like oh you know it's just a pretty nice day out like oh yeah okay like no that's just that's just my investment in the world i guess mm -hmm. um i guess that's what it says about me that yeah that i my attention span is very short indeed and and we all focus on different things as players as dungeon masters you know what is important to us what's not um I had, this just came to me, we had a game once where uh, we were playing Dungeons and Dragons and Samantha, one of the, the girls from college we were playing with, she played a druid and every single session she would cast druidcraft and apparently you can detect what weather is coming your way with that, with that cantrip and she purely did it to spite Kyle, our dungeon master at the time. I, playfully, but it was like, Kyle, what's the weather going to be today? I cast Druidcraft. And it was fantastic. And the weather always was forced into the story that way. So again, I like to leave it to the players. If the players want it, they likely will seek it and give it to them. Um, otherwise, you know, if it's, if it's not mechanically necessary, I'm probably going to leave it out. I, I I guess like the point of the episode is to use Druidcraft all the time. Absolutely. Um, and finally, 
why does it seem like DMs are okay with making their own homebrew items and classes and features, but generally not cool with unearthed arcana stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, you know me, I have some simple answers for this. Uh, Wizards of the Coast has said that their unearthed arcana is intentionally overtuned because they find it easier. And you can, you can go online and find the interviews, I think with Jeremy Crawford. He says that they overtune it so that when they bring it to play testing and they bring it to published material, easier for them to adjust it downward. It's simply the, the matter of the beast. So I do not have the luxury of having a team of play testers. So when I homebrew items, I err on the side of caution and I make my homebrew items weaker. And I know that Wizards has made their Unearthed Arcana stronger because I've seen Unearthed Arcana. It is oftentimes incredibly volatile or strong or potentially game breaking. Um, so I just I just don't use it. I wait for it to be published because once it hits Unearthed Arcana, some, some manner of it is coming to published material. And I say to my player, just wait. It'll come out. You'll get it when it comes out. If you want something in the meanwhile that's homebrewed, it will be weaker, but I, I'll, I'll accommodate you. And typically the answer is no, and that tells me that they just wanted something really strong. Uh, for whatever reason, you were sounding like a parent there, and I was about to say, take care of your dog. Yeah, brush its teeth. <laughs> Sacrifice it to the volcano god. I like that we're doing sacrifices now. Um, well, it happens. I guess it does. All I have to say about this is um, your own homebrewed items feel a little bit more personal. And mm. like your homebrewed classes are a little bit more personal because you know what you want. You know what your players want. Absolutely. Um, and that's kind of not the thing that happens with Unearthed Arcana. It's, it's kind of like... Um, if you like going to a donut shop, that's not mm -hmm. Dunkin' Donuts or Krispy Kreme, um, because they make it a certain way as opposed to having it just sent in from a store. Like actually Krispy Kreme is not a good example because they actually make their stuff. Dunkin' Donuts doesn't, um, we but don't yeah. need libel. Yep. So when <laughs> we get shut down because of Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> sorry guys. Um, but yeah, that's that's what it is. It's it's like trying to fit a square a square peg through a round hole sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I also mentioned to you that it can be an ego thing. Um sometimes for me, it you know, if a player comes to me and says, Can we homebrew this? I'm really excited that they trust me enough to collaborate with me. Whereas if I see a player go to Unearthed Arcana, unofficial content that I know is overtuned. I'm just going to roll my eyes, and that's probably not fair to the player either. But if you go to your DM and you say, hey, you know, you do work that I love. Can can you work with me on this and create something fun for me? You're going to you're gonna get a better response. You're, you're basically complimenting your, your Dungeon Master's ability to create something themselves that's satisfactory to you. Gabe so, has favorites. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I I am human. I mean, I can be bribed subtly with compliments and thanks. And my Venmo is... So with that, we are actually out of time. Oh. We got through all the questions. So that's pretty nice. I want to thank everybody for listening for 10 episodes. It's been mm -hmm. truly amazing. Um, A blessing uh, and an honor. Yeah, I don't think that we thought that we were going to get this far huh. i'm my head's so far up my own you know what jake i didn't think we'd get this far either <laughs> <laughs> so there's that um as always i really hope that you enjoyed what you heard you can find us on apple podcast amazon music stitcher or wherever you like to listen to podcasts remember to like review and share our podcast to other people who yeah. need or want to become better people at their table. And who <laughs> needs to hear it today in particular. I need to Maybe hear it send this to someone that you don't like at your table. Any people Look who... in the mirror, says Jake. 
any people who are in the Bloomsburg area and know of a DM, possibly send it their way. <laughs> yes, let's start targeting people from our past. I would never target him. Anyway. <laughs> As always, I'm Jacob, and I didn't mention Lord Happy again. Well, that's okay, because Lord Happy is now a Krispy Kreme. A mimic, maybe, too, with the table. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And this was, and, um... Oh, no, you'd still and, go. And I'm Gabe. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. We're falling apart. Ten episodes was it. This is all we got in the tank, folks. And this was one debate. Luke Tar Ogar.